Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Arthur Snell. Back in June, while most of us were locked down and trying not to get coronavirus, something extraordinary happened high in the Himalayan mountains. China and India fought a battle. And while some of the details of this battle are still unclear, we know that at least 20 Indian soldiers were killed and they had fought with clubs, bricks and fists, all these old-fashioned weapons. As an illustration of the tensions between the two huge countries that might be the next two superpowers, this was a stark reminder of what could be a clouded future. So we're delighted today to have Professor Guy Burton of Vesalio College in Brussels, who's an expert on the foreign policies of China and India, to help us understand these issues. Guy, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you very much for having me. Why don't we just start by talking about that uh, battle up in up in the Himalayas in June? Could you explain to our listeners what on earth was going on and why it was important? Yeah, so what was happening there was uh, a territorial dispute that has been pretty much long-standing between India and China. One of the one of the sort of the the fallouts of previous colonial periods, like before India became independent, was that some of the areas that became India were not fully demarcated. Uh, this isn't the first time this has happened. In fact, there was a, a, a Sino-Indian war back in 1962, uh, in which you know sort of the Indians were overwhelmed and were and were humiliated in, in the process. Um, but the, almost a, a month or so after that happened, you know, the Chinese fell back, um, although they never renounced their claims. And so this has always been you know an issue that's been rumbling on between uh, you know China and India. But of course, there are other issues that, that I'm sure we're going to talk about where you know, India and China have uh, you know, tensions between them as well. But this is obviously the most sort of most visible manifestation that's happened in the last few years. Right. And if we just try and take a step back for a moment, I mean, I mentioned in the introduction, we've got these two countries that are possibly the two future superpowers of, of the coming century. Is it inevitable that India and China are set to be in conflict with one another? Well, no, not really. But I mean, you know, generally what we tend to do when we're looking at international relations is we can, you can sort of see, see relations between, you know, states, uh, you know, through a prism of, you know, on one hand, cooperation, and on the other hand, you know, competition. And certainly, you know, when we look at China and India, especially over the last, I guess, sort of the last decades to two decades, which is really when we're talking about sort of the rise of these two countries. Um, there's been a lot more focus on sort of the elements of cooperation. So if you think about, you know, their involvement in, in groupings like the BRICS, India's involvement in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is kind of a security arrangement in, cent- in Central Asia. But it's st- there is still sort of elements of competition that, that underpin the relationship. In the Indian Ocean, for example, uh, is an area where the Chinese seem to be having an increasing presence and in which you know, the, Ch- the Indians have always typically seen as their own uh, particular territory. And similarly, in South Asia, you know, if you think about countries like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, you know, um, Myanmar, uh, Nepal, you know, these are areas that the China, that the India has very much seen as its own sphere of influence. And it sees in, you know, to China encroaching in, in that area, specifically in relation to things like the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so there is this sort of tension that does exist between them. Uh, the challenge is trying to sort of make the more cooperative elements you know, outweigh the comp- competitive ones. Here in the West, we have this very sort of self-centered way at looking at other countries. But if we were going to talk about China and India and how they relate to one another, how do they see those relations? 
And do they see them as more important and more significant than, for example, their relationship with the US or the UK? So I think, you know, I mean, you can you can look at the, you know, what's driving uh, these two countries foreign policy from sort of the from from an internal domestic level, but also, you know, in terms of what's going on in the wider world. I mean, I think what's really interesting about both of these countries at the moment is that they're both led by leaderships which are quite nationalistic. Um, but yes, you know, the, there is obviously the sort of the wider politics of the of, of, of the world to think about. And then when we think about what's happening at the moment, you know, there's there has been some discussion in international relations circles about a shift from what was a period of American dominance after the Cold War in the 1990s to what, a world in which we're increasingly seeing you know, more state actors becoming more and more visible, more prominent and more assertive in their, in their approach. And so there's much more multipolar world in which you know, India and China you know, are placing themselves. And it, you know, broadly, you know, it's been sort of portrayed as either you know, they are going to either support the international order or challenge it. Um, Although I think that's a little bit too simplistic. I mean, certainly there's a sense that as rising powers, you know, they have benefited somewhat to the sort of the nature of the international system, but they're not willing to just leave it as is. They want to see changes. They want to transform it uh, in their own in their own way and own manner as well. One of the interesting things about uh, the relationship with the West, I mean, you've just described that sort of nationalist um, tendency, which is there both in China and India, obviously manifesting itself in very different ways. But of course, that rather points towards, um, you know, one or two Western leaders. And in fact, this kind of populist nationalism, as we've seen, has has had a bit of a moment. So why is it then that it seems that for the Indian populist nationalists, they find it easy to work with Donald Trump? You've got Donald Trump, I think, attended a huge rally in India, and, and Modi did similar in the US. Uh, whereas China and America seem to be set on this sort of inevitable path to conflict. Well, I mean, really, you have to sort of go back about a decade before. I mean, the Americans are still you know, the predominant power. Um, and so a lot of the sort of the, the rising power considerations are how do we uh, re- relate to the United States? And certainly in the case of you know, India and, and China, um, you know, India during the 1990s, you know, it was becoming uh, more engaged with the United States. And what you found was, especially from around 2005, you know, a strategic partnership was agreed between the previous government uh, of Prime Minister Singh, along with George Bush the Younger. Um, that has gained increasing resonance, obviously, sort of in the current period because of, you know, sort of the, the American confrontation with China. Now, in some ways, the Chinese situation has been somewhat different because, you know, as they were becoming more and more of an economic, uh, you know, superpower, they made they were quite keen to emphasize the fact that they were they did not see themselves as as a threat. They did not want to be seen as a threat. And so they would emphasize that their rise was peaceful. Um, I think what's happened with with Trump is, of course, as you flagged up, you know, he came to power, you know, sort of emphasizing America being left behind, being taken for a ride, uh, losing employment opportunities, trade to to China, and he very much portrayed this in a kind of a zero sum game. Um, and so we reach we reach the point where we have this trade dispute, this trade war going on between the Chinese and and the Americans, but which seems to be now spilling over into into politics. And within the context of that, keeping in mind that you know the Indians and Americans have had 
a much more closer relationship and rapport over the last decade and a half. That kind of fits in with this this positioning of uh, you know America on one side when it comes to China, but you know much more sympathetic towards India on the other. Does that sort of framing also carry across into Europe? Yeah, the Indians do have a reasonable, reasonably okay relationship with Europe. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's blanketly good. I mean, there are points of contention and 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 difference between them. Um, I mean, obviously, things like uh, you will find that you know the Europeans want to encourage more um, exports of services, whereas obviously you know the Indians are more concerned with you know commodities and manufacturing, and so that has held up to some degree you know the ability for for, for further trade. And then, of course, there is the fact that, you know, the European Union as a supranational body, you know, it is a coherent, it's a coherent whole when it comes to things like trade and, and, and finance. But when it comes to, you know, foreign policy, security issues, it, it comes down to the individual member states. And then, of course, you know, the European Union as well has, you know, emphasized, made great play about its, rela- its relationship towards democracy and human rights. Um, and you would think that with India being, a, you know, the world's largest democracy as well, that there would be some overlap there. But actually, there's a little bit of a difference because to some degree, the Europeans sort of see democracy promotion as something that, um, you know, is, is acceptable. It's something that is part of their mission, whereas the Indians have typically had this much more standoff approach towards foreign policy. They don't see their role as you know, being particularly active when it comes to promoting democracy and imposing it on others. And that actually is sort of is some, one of the points that's actually quite interesting that, that, that brings both China and India together. Um, in principle, they both agree with some, some, some ideas uh, which they, they signed up to in the mid-1950s. Uh, you know, the Indians call it Pashil, and whereas the, the Chinese call it you know, the five principles of peaceful coexistence, in which they emphasize things like national sovereignty, uh, emphasize non-aggression, emphasized uh, non-intervention. And although sometimes these have been sort of more honored in principle than in practice, it is sort of the lodestone, as it were, of both countries and their foreign policies. So in a way, they kind of can both agree that the Europeans are rather annoying in that they're always giving them lectures about human rights and the rule of law and that sort of thing. And, and, and in that sense, I think what you're saying is India and China can kind of agree that they don't really want to be told what to do by sort of former colonial powers in the West. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's actually the point to flag up as well, because, you know, one of the things that we sometimes overlook is this colonial legacy, right? Um, you know, if you think about the history of these countries, we, you know, whereas before we were sort of, you know, talked down to, as it were, by, by Western powers. Now we're sort of meeting them, you know, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an equal, more equal and basis. And, and in some ways, actually, this is sort of a question, I think, if we're thinking about Britain and its relationship with India. I mean, it's one thing to keep in mind that the British, you know, talk about, well, of course, you know, post-Brexit, we should have a good relationship with India and with other countries that we had an empire with. But that's not necessarily the way it's seen from, from India. Yeah, and I mean that's a really good point. Uh, funnily enough, I I I can remember from my time as a diplomat, there was a slightly notorious incident where the British High Commissioner in Delhi uh, was giving a speech in which he said he was basically sort of saying, well, you know, the empire was a long time ago, and there won't be people who really have a direct experience of of you know that period of British colonial control. 
And an elderly gentleman in the audience put his hand up and said, well, I remember it because I was arrested by the colonial police for advocating for independence. And of course, that was a rather embarrassing uh, experience for the High Commissioner. But I think um, the the point you've made there, Guy, about uh, how we in Britain seem to be in a bit of a muddle about our sort of colonial past is one that's worth exploring a bit further. Because, of course, although China was by no means ever a colony of of Britain, with the exception of Hong Kong, uh, there's still also there quite a lot of baggage, isn't there, about Britain's historic role in China? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you you flag up Hong Kong, I mean, which is obviously ceded to the British at the end of the Opium Wars, which is uh, a particularly sort of egregious period in in, in British imperial history. Um, I mean, you know, I think what's interesting in the last month has been sort of what has happened as a result of you know China's decision for the national security law. So this is where I think you know that there has been a shift in, in in the British approach towards China, and and a lot of this comes down to the fact that you know the the arrangements that regarding uh, China, the the handover of Hong Kong uh, back in 1997 were agreed back actually in 1984. There was an understanding that although Hong Kong would become Chinese again. That there would be it would be one country, two systems. So Hong Kong's you know legal system would continue, its financial system would continue. So all of what had made you know Hong Kong um, you know sort of an economic success would not be touched. And and to begin with, that that pretty much continued. That the Chinese did not want to uh, you know to to you know to kill the kill the golden goose as it were. But you know over the last you know twenty odd years. Uh, you know the, the the economic weight, the influence of Hong Kong has become uh, comparatively less important and less less significant in size to to the wider Chinese economy. So what we have seen is with the national security law, the Chinese finally closing a, you know closing a cycle of protest, a cycle of you know much more free politics, um, and in which in which they're basically closing up this idea of two systems. And so, you know, people being, you know, sort of uh, arrested or, or detained in, in Hong Kong can be tried in China now. And that has created a sort of real sort of, you know, rift, uh, you know, not just with Britain, but I think uh, in, the, in, in the West as well. Uh, we now have the British uh, talking about, you know, sort of providing um, uh, assistance or at least to, you know, allowing uh, certain Hong Kong residents, you know, sort of, you know, the ability to 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 relocate and resettle in the UK if necessary. Although that won't be for the whole population. Um, obviously, this has sort of been treated with a considerable amount of, you know, criticism on on the side of the Chinese who sort of see this as interference in their own affairs. Yeah, but I wanted to bring in another very important country in all of this, which is Pakistan, and of course, Pakistan sits geographically between China and India, in in certain bits anyway. Um, And India has historically had this very tense relationship with Pakistan, whereas China has quite a sort of strong alliance. Is is that simply because China is sort of balancing off its relations with India by being close to Pakistan, or is there more to it than that? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's it's not... There is an element of that, of, of, you know, great power politics at play, and this idea of sort of balancing, you know, sort of one power off with another, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. There is a bit of that. But I mean, can I also just take 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 issue with the idea that, you know, sort of it's it's, it's an alliance between China and, and Pakistan. I don't think it's really as as close and as formal as that. Um, but certainly, yes, the China and Pakistan has had have had this this relationship which goes back decades. 
But also to some extent, you know, if, if we go back to the Cold War period and in the post-independence period, uh, you do see sort of obviously a division, a, a difference. Uh, you know, at the time in the 1950s, you know, the Indians adopted a policy of, of non-alignment and under their first prime minister of uh, Nehru. Um, and for that reason, um, you know, you find you found that the the United States looking for partners in the region found that the Pakistan, that Pakistan was more more open to to, to that possibility of, of engagement, whereas India wasn't. Um, with with China and America also starting to have their own detente from the ni- from the 1970s, whereas then I think by that point what you see is the Indians. Uh, realizing that, you know, sort of this non-alignment, and especially in the wake of the war that they had with China, um, that non-alignment wasn't serving them. And so they, you, under a much more pragmatic, realist policy, they started to build a partnership with the Soviet Union. So you, and of course, you know, China and the Soviet Union have their own rivalry as well. And that goes back to the period after Stalin's death. Uh, from the Chinese perspective, this is because they see, you know, they, they see themselves as, a, as, as an aspiring great power and at the time being constrained or, or put, pushed back by, by Moscow. So for this reason, you see that sort of the China, China and is, India have been, you know, caught up in this, uh, you know, position of being on different opposite sides. Um, and so for that, for that reason, it's not just a question of Pakistan. It's a question of, you know, other partners that, that these two countries can sort of find to, to work with. Yeah, and this concept of partners is fascinating. But I think... Since we're sort of coming towards the end of our time, Guy, it would be great to uh, just, you know, whip out the crystal ball and talk a little bit about where you think that the, the future lies. And, and I think in particular, there is this idea that uh, China and India are both rising powers. They're going to become, they arguably already are, superpowers. Um, and in that context, uh, particularly in the context of increased tension between America and China, is there a future in which China is at war with America and America's ally is India? Or is that too simple and something else is going to happen? What's your yeah. thinking? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I think the idea that, you know, great powers are going to go to war with each other, I think is a very sort of, you know, last century um, you know, way of thinking. You know, countries might be in competition with each other, but in cooperation, you know, on other things. And I think one of the things that you've got to see with, with both China and India is that really over the last sort of 20 odd years or so, what they've done is they've, you know, prioritized economic development, you know, of their, of, of their countries and put foreign policy in the surface, in the service of that. And I think maybe what we're starting to see is, you know, sort of as these powers become more and more, you know, uh, prominent on the world stage, that, you know, nationalist, you know, sort of considerations are also going to, going to become uh, more evident as well. And so there is that sense of, you know, greater assertiveness. Um, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily going to come to the point of, you know, of war between them themselves or uh, with other powers. Uh, what you tend to find is that they will have these skirmishes. I mean, given, you know, that there was, there was this spat that took place last month. Uh, keep in mind that, as you said at the outset, that they were sort of, it was very much was sort of bricks and bats. And yet these are also two nuclear powers. Um, I think there is a sense that, you know, they, there, there are sort of points of cutoff where, you know, it's not going to reach that, that moment where there will be a nuclear standoff between them. Um, finally, the last point I'd just sort of say as well is that, you know, it, we've been talking about them as if they're sort of equals, but they're not really. I mean, 
you know, certainly, you know, India sort of sees itself as a, an aspiring power. And, so, and, and in Delhi, they talk about themselves as being a leading power. But I mean, and, you know, they are still sort of in search to become a, a great power, whereas, you know, China already is. And if you think, if, even if you just look at sort of the economic size of the two, uh, in, just in the last year, you know, China's GDP was 14 trillion and India's was nearly three. So that gives you some idea of the sheer scale, the size of, of China in comparison to India. Guy, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I've certainly learned a lot and I hope the listeners have too. So thank you very much for joining us in the bunker. Well, thank you very much. Listeners, thanks to you for listening. And remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with a main panel podcast on Wednesdays. You can get each edition early and without adverts, plus our glittering range of Bunker merchandise too, when you back us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Andrew Harrison. Assistant producer was Jacob Archbold with audio production by me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.